Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. We discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I went to Harvard, and I've been a private investigator in Boston for 20 years. My name is Laura McDonald. I work in luxury. I have deep connections to law enforcement, and murder is my hobby. And together, we are Ivy League Murders. Truman Capote once wrote that all literature is gossip. In an Esquire article entitled La Cote Basque in 1975, Truman served up his socialite friends, his swans, on a silver platter. This is the subject of a new series entitled Feud, colon, Capote and his Swans. Capote's pen became weapon when he also wrote about the Billy Woodward murder. He squarely laid the blame for the murder on Billy's wife, Anne Woodward. Anne then took a handful of secondol and ended her life. In a two-part series on Capote, Laura and I are going to talk once again to Jane Hitchcock. Hitchcock is a wonderful novelist and playwright, and she grew up in that rarefied New York society world. She knew Truman. She knew Billy Woodward Jr. Hitchcock was a signet in a world of swans. Laura and I are drawn to bougie and to murder, and there's no bougier murder than the Woodward affair. So in the second part of the series, we will be re-releasing our episode on Anne and Billy Woodward. If you're watching the series on Capote and his swans, we think you will enjoy the backstory of the Woodward murder. Welcome back, Jane Hitchcock. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. And vice versa. It's so fun. I love this podcast. Thank Uh, you for having me. Amazing. And such perfect timing that we have you, Jane, right when this mini-series has come out that's captivated everybody and brought terrific the case of Ann Woodward and Truman. All of a sudden, there's this renewed interest. Yes. Now, Laura, hold up what you were holding up. And what are you holding up, Laura? Describe it. I am holding up the original, the actual Esquire magazine, November 1975, with Rich Little on the cover. This was the magazine that was released with Lacote Basque in it. Right. So as I said, I were the murder weapon and the suicide weapon, (laughs) depending on your point of view. I mean, that was the weapon that started it. That was writing at it. The the pen was much mightier than the uh, caviar and the sword. It didn't Truman say that, that sometimes, you know, people, his words could be daggers, weapons, and they were in this case. And it's so interesting that Sarah and I have been interested in this case for so long and got this magazine a few years ago. And all of a sudden now everyone's fascinated. For our people who are completely new to this, our listeners who know nothing about this, let's pull the camera up 10,000 feet right? Mm -hmm. What is in this magazine that was so explosive? Explicitly, what was it that was so explosive? Well, they're watching this brilliant miniseries, Truman and the Swans. He just betrayed everybody, but mainly by writing about the affairs, the drug use, everything, particularly of Babe Paley and the famous story about Bill 
who had an affair with Happy Rockefeller and he was trying to wash the blood out from the sheets because she had her period. But he spilled all the secrets of these women who he had cosseted and and comforted and been the guest of and the confidant of for years. Truman loved the high life and it completely seduced him to a point where the artist conflicted with the friendship. And that's really what happens to all artists eventually. I think that they, we see things through a glass darkly. And when we start to write about it, we can damage, we can damage friendship because we see it too clearly maybe, or we see it too explicitly. He could have veiled it, but the point is everybody knew these stories because they all knew each other. And those stories were within that very tiny segment of society. They were well-known. So when he spilled the beans, they said, what are you doing? Babe was mortally embarrassed. Everybody was just horrified that he would betray his coterie of dear friends like that. And for Anne Woodward, this basically precipitated her killing herself. Well, that's what they said. I knew her son, Woody, Woody, a lovely guy who then committed suicide. And I'm not sure that people kill themselves because of a magazine article. There's a lot else going on there. And they were easily able to blame Truman because it was such a horrific thing that he did in terms of this society which gives you an idea of how insulated and how the word is almost escapes me, how I want to say cosseted, but how precious this society was. It was like in the 18th century, Marie Antoinette had les précieuses, who were her little friends and they were the precious ones. And this society was precious in that way. And yet everybody wanted to be a part of it. And when I look back at it now, I was seduced by it. I was younger than this crowd here, but I certainly, I went to Amanda Burden, who's Bill Paley's stepdaughter and who's Babe's daughter. I mean, I'm having dinner with Amanda in two weeks, but I didn't know Babe. I knew who she was and all that sort of thing. I did know Lee Radziwill quite well because she married Herbie Ross. And of course, she's the sister of, of one of my closest friends, Jackie. Onassis. And I did know Carol Mathau, who was actually there the night I met my husband, my wonderful husband, Jim Hoagland. We were all at a party for Dick Avedon that Tina Brown gave at the New York Public Library in the uh, Celeste Bartos Forum. And Carol was there. I was on Jim's right and she was on his left. And she got so drunk, she fell under the table. And Peter Duchin had to kind of escort her out. And Nene Strait, who was, who is a wonderful Nene, who is Jackie's stepsister, she said, Jane, I saw you and Jim fall in love that night because there was nobody sitting on either side. One had been drunk and one got up and left. I mean, so I, I did know Carol. And also she was married to Walter Matthau, who was a good friend of my mom and my stepfather's, as was Truman. And I was at the black and white ball. I was there. My parents took me to the black and white ball. And I remember what the, my indelible memory of the black and white ball is that Linda Bird Johnson looking at me and saying, have you seen my mask? I can't find my mask. <laughs> Going all over looking for a mask. But I was just a kid. I wore my coming out dress designed by Donald Brooks, wonderful designer. And my parents were there because they were friends of Truman's. And when, uh, this is just so 
classic of our family, which I call a publicity-free zone, because when the hundred people were published in the New York Times, Joan and Arthur Stanton are not there. And I know my mother said, how is this possible? We, you know, we, we know we were there. And, and I said, yeah, it's weird. I didn't care. At that point, Who I, I was what, 18. I couldn't have cared less. But my parents were kind of, wait a minute. And so when Deborah Davis, who wrote the book on the black and white vault, Deborah, great book, fabulous book, please everybody buy it. She said, of course they were there because I found she said, I, Deborah, found the legal pad in which Truman had made a first list of people that he wanted to invite. And there, Joan and Arthur, right there. And I said, well, the New York Times <laughs> did not see fit to include us, but there you go, or my parents, so there you go. One question to Jane. You told me when we were talking the other day that Truman would take you out for lunch when you were a young, twice. A young girl. He took me out twice. I want to make that very clear. Okay. We, we went both times to Southampton, to this restaurant that he loved in Southampton. And I don't really remember the first time, but I remember the second time because he was talking about Babe. A whole lot of balloons just went <laughs> flying over my screen. Thank you. That Thank was you. Truman. It must that have was, been. That was Truman, yeah. And, I you know, I loved his writing. His writing was so wonderful. Other voices, other rooms. I mean... Breakfast at Tiffany's. I mean, he was just such a graceful and beautiful writer. But you're talking about a society that was really, as I, I like to say, marching into the twilight of inconsequence. We did not really, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we just, even as far as the 90s, we didn't understand that there was a far bigger life out there than this tiny little kind of niche of people who ran the big institutions, who were photographed ad nauseum. And all of this was happening when, I want to say, the revolution was going on around us. And these people were the last of the bunch. They were the great last grand dames. And to a, a woman, they were miserable. Yes. <laughs> Which just goes to show you how everybody was looking up to all of this misery and not knowing. You can never tell about people when they're posing for the camera. You don't know what's going on inside them. And of course, I grew up around, I mean, Leonard Bernstein conducted Happy Birthday to me when I was 21 and Lauren Bacall was there and Dick Avedon and everybody. And, and I saw really talented people be really upset with their own personal lives. And their personal lives were a tangle of secrets and lies and talent and the highest of the high and the lowest of the low. And therefore, I just said, I have no reverence for this. What was your memory of Truman or what was that lunch like when you went out? I, I really don't remember all that much about him, except he was very engaging. And he did mention Babe about maybe three or four times. I was friends of Amanda, not Truman. So I was friends of the daughter. But, you know, he liked younger people. And I think he liked the worshipfulness of, I was really more interested in Truman as a writer, as one of the seminal writers. Truman was there, my parents, Bill Styron, Peter Matheson, and I wanted to be a writer. And so having lunch with Truman, someone I really admired, I didn't think about the social aspect of it at all, frankly. It was only later when I... And I knew Cezy because 
Cece was hilarious. And my first husband, Billy Hitchcock, actually dated Cece, I believe. She was gorgeous. She was fun. She was very irreverent. She was a real rebel. She was fantastic. But these swans, there's a wonderful, this kind of a description in the, the writing of this. I never thought that, that this would go as a series because I thought this is too insular. People won't know who these women are. They won't care. But the writer in this series makes you care. And he tells you why they were swans. They were paddling furiously underneath. I mean, that might have been Truman's whole conceit. But he really investigates the underside of this world. And I had really doubts about it. No more. And he gets the director, Gus Van Sant, really gets the jewels, the attitude, the, yeah. I mean, they even got Kenneth right. Kenneth was the famous hairdresser. I'll tell you one funny thing. I said, I called Amanda. I said, Amanda, they got one thing wrong. It was Lyford Key, not Jamaica. And she said, no, no, it was Jamaica because <laughs> we had our first uh, house in Jamaica and then we uh, abandoned Jamaica for whatever reasons and they built Lyford. I have been to Lyford many times. She said, so they were right. They got, they got the clothes, they got Verdura and they just really researched this so damn well. And ultimately, they might have, I, I don't think Anne Woodward appeared at the party. She so did it. That, yeah, that's, that's an added. Uh... That, but but, but it, it, it works in terms of the art. And, does, and, yeah. and the writer has enlarged this group to a point where you see the underbelly of what people thought was the ne plus ultra, the highest of the high. I think that's something really difficult to do. I think he did it. And I think he did it well. And I think the director and the acting, fabulous. I agree with you 100%. I, I am, of course, have, have always and for many years been very fascinated by all of these women and Wallace Simpson and the whole... The Nazi. Period, the whole period. The Nazi. But one thing that strikes me as I look into these women, especially because they tend to be who I'm more fascinated by deeper is underneath the glamour and the jewels and everything are just very bored, unfulfilled, generally drunk women. I, mean, I don't know I, that they were. I don't know that they were so bored. Like, for example, I uh, mean, lack of purpose, I think, is my I point. don't think they had a lack of purpose because I do think that, for example, my friend Jane Reitzman. Mm -hmm. had a curatorial knowledge of 18th century French furniture and donated the Reitzman rooms to the Metropolitan Museum, which are the most magisterial rooms. And, and many of these women sat on boards. They sat right. on special projects at Sloan Kettering. I don't think it, it, it was that. I, I just think that certainly Carol Mathau wasn't bored. Her daughter, Lucy Saroyan, who she was married to William Saroyan, one of the great playwrights. And I don't think it was a question of boredom. I think it was a question of floating on a sea that they didn't quite navigate, know how to navigate emotionally. Maybe it's priorities to me because there seems to be a lack of, of, of a priority on motherhood or... Oh, mother. Oh, babe, with the worst mother. I mean, and I guess as a Wait. woman, that to me, that seems like a primary. It just seems like that is just not a priority at all. Can no, we, uh, well, but that, that was also uh, left over from the Victorian period in which all of these girls were raised. I mean, basically not all, but certainly Babe was and everything. I actually think Cece was probably a wonderful mother. I mean, Cornelia is a terrific girl and, and, and I think she was probably a very good mother. But Carol Mathau, not really, not really that good. Lucy 
didn't end well, and I don't think Aram Saroyan ended all that well. Uh, and we know Anne Woodward was not a great mom, but she wasn't a swan either. Lee, again, not a great mom, but they were very narcissistic. Yes. Let's face it. That very good way to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Narcissism doesn't really go well with, with mothers. I had a narcissistic mother, and I can tell you, not, not, not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the thing that endeared me to CZ is apparently she adopted all of these little misfit dogs one with three legs and a Mexican hairless, and a, this one was blind. And she's had this whole pack of dogs that she basically rescued. Well, any, so, any, I, I think dogs rule. I like dogs better than people, an admission I don't care to admit, but I scream it from the rooftops. I love dogs. So Sarah should um, tell you that she's a new dog mom, and so she's in the new bliss of dog mom owners. Okay, what do you have? Where did you get it? Oh, she's a rescue. She's yes. lovely. She's lying right here. I sent you pictures, Jane. I uh, Where? Rem- I, 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 I think I sent you a photograph with my daughter. In any case, I could talk about dogs all <laughs> day long. What's the dog's name? Pippa. Oh, yeah, I think Pippa. Pippa. I wanted to ask you, and I have my own theories about this. Why do you think Truman basically socially sabotaged himself by writing this? Well, first of all, I think that his art came first, and I think that he was very seduced by that world and felt that it was the ne plus ultra. He felt he was Proust, and he had access to all those people. That's who he thought he was. Yes. He wasn't, but, you know, you wonder, as an artist, if that's who you're hanging. It's not you are what you eat. It's you are who you eat with. And so he felt he had access to the pinnacle of high society. I mean, like Proust, but he didn't have the... But but, but unlike Proust, Proust was of that world. No, Proust he didn't... wasn't. Not really. When you go into mm-hmm. it, he was not of that world. No, he, he, was, he was on the outside more than people think. Mm-hmm. He was not born into it, you know, and, he's, and when he gets to the table of the... He says, are they really talking like this? I can't believe it. No, he was not so much like that. But Truman was not such a vagabond either. He was pretty well situated when he was young. I mean, he did go live on Park Avenue or whatever, I think, with, with a family. But it, it's not- his stepfather it, was, yeah. Was it? I, I'm, not, I'm not really all that familiar yeah, with his background. Yeah, his mother married well with his stepfather. He went to a good private high school. And yeah, he, he was like socially adjacent, young. When you're embraced by this kind of wealth, okay, it's very, very, very seductive. Money corrupts. Absolute money corrupts. Absolutely. It's very hard not to be swayed by it. I know somebody who, a great director, who uh, kind of lost sight of his own talent because he married one of the swans and it didn't do him much good. But I think that Truman felt that he could somehow corral his art and his friends into this great opus. And also, it might just be, he was drinking a lot, maybe he ran out of ideas. And he just said, I'll just write it like I see it. And it'll be just riveting. I think there might be some truth to that, that he was kind of out of things to to write about, that he never really finished and answered prayers. But I think though, I think you might be right. However, 
I think his greatest work is in cold blood. I don't understand why there were so many. He could have written about Albert Fish. He could have written about so many things going on crime-wise. I wish that he had stuck to crime narrative and gone with that because that was, to me, that's his greatest work. I don't know. I mean, Breakfast at Tiffany's pretty good and that's not crime narrative and other voices, other rooms. He wrote Elliot and, you know, Among the Paths to Eden. I think In Cold Blood, because he was reputed to be in love with Perry, was an anomaly. And he just stumbled onto this fantastic story and made it so compelling. And it's just a great work. But I think he was in love with the person he was writing about, much like he was probably in love with Babe and very conflicted, very conflicted about all of them. And probably on some level, maybe wanted to be them by osmosis. <laughs> I have a very funny friend who, who's a great writer. And she said to me, you know, she said, all my friends were buying these very fancy apartments. And she said, so I put money down on a, on a very fancy apartment. And then I realized, I'm poor. I don't have the money. <laughs> and I think that, that the money seduces people. Always. Terrible. I wonder also if it's why he went after Anne Woodward, too, because she was a climber. She was a she was the true chorus girl. No, who, oh, chorus yeah. girl. Which is so ridiculous, because frankly, as I said, in social crimes, the stewardesses, the so I mean, the prostitutes. I mean, you have Madame Claude, who was giving girls to the highest of state and billionaires and everything. It makes those women a lot more interesting, if, if you want to know the truth, than just being reared in prep schools with white bread with the crust cut off. It's boring. But the girls who kind of claw their way up, and th those are the interesting ones to me. But I do think that Truman was so seduced by the pedigrees of these women. But ultimately, when you live in that world, with the private planes, the private yachts, everything perfect. One scene that absolutely struck me so great, which I think was just brilliantly juxtaposed, was the Thanksgiving with the Swans and the Thanksgiving with Joanne Carson, who's probably had a much more interesting group of people, if you want to know the truth. But I thought that it was brilliantly juxtaposed because it was all very decorous with the gilt, the, the vermeil uh, eating stuff and the perfect settings and the fabulous thing. And then he just, in the other corner, they're stabbing the turkey. And I think Phyllis Diller was supposedly represented as a, yes, as, one of, as one of the, yeah. Truman just was, all he could think of was I could be regaling this group of cadaverous rich people. And instead I'm watching a turkey being stabbed. And I think he just hated it. <laughs> One thing I find interesting about he he did seem to have kind of a, a slight fascination with Anne Woodward is that Dominic Dunn eventually picks up that torch and writes this great work that Truman probably could have written, which was the two Mrs. Grenvilles. But I think we've discussed this before. I knew Nick extremely well, and Nick used to come out to my house all the time. And he had lunch with me and said to me, listen, Janie, I have been researching the Woodward case, and I'm going to write it as nonfiction, but I want to be very clear that some of the things I have found out, I can't prove. And when you write nonfiction, this is a big no-no. You have to vet everything. First of all, right. you're going to get sued. Second of all, people are going to attack you. So we both agreed, write it as fiction. And then he Im imbued the two Mrs. Grenville's with the dynamic of that society, which is, it was still could be defended 
if the grand dame took that position. So if Mrs. Woodward, if the mother of the murdered man and who was Elsie Woodward was so, she was the ne plus ultra of the grand dame, right? If she said, it's okay, it was Edith Wharton time. If I say it's, if I say it's fine, it's, it's fine. And she was able to stave off a lot of the criticism in real life. And Truman just said, well, I've had enough of this. <laughs> I'm going to tell it like it is. And I think your point, Sarah, is brilliant because I think it gave him leverage to talk about that whole society and trash it without trashing the people who were giving him bread and circus by just mm. by being so rich. Right. It does seem like he really so so self-destructive at the end, but his whole life was self-destructive at that point. I don't think that he knew that he was being self-destructive. I think he, he thought that all of those women would stick with him no matter what. I think he was a bit shocked by the response. No, but the thing about it is, it, it, I, I think he was not only shocked, but totally blindsided by the freeze out. Yes. And, and, and I think that Van Sant does a really interesting thing with Babe, which is that she wants to forgive him, but she's got this coterie of people who say, you can't, you can't. And then she finds that maybe her relationship with Bill suffered because of her attachment to Truman. And so she, at the end of her life, she maybe wants to be with her husband. And because I found it very touching that she wants to reach out, but she can't. And that may be because essentially she's a very cold woman because she had to understand he was an artist and he shouldn't have done what he did. But in the end, the other swans, I think, forgave him. I mean, I'm not sure all of them did, but some of them did. He really went after Lee at the end of his life, Publi yeah. publicly. He was also, you know, he, he was betrayed in, in his mind. And, mm -hmm. and in his mind, he was this great artist. And, well, I do what artists do. But he wasn't that great in the end. And, and he didn't choose his friends wisely because they wanted to show their power, too. Yeah, and he was also a terrible alcoholic with a with a public forum, which just did not aid him because he he acted out so much, and a lot of it's recorded because his behavior was so bad, and a lot of it was tolerated because of who he was. And that's some of the writing in in you know is quite shocking in in the script, but I think it gets to the essence. It just gets to the he he digs the writer digs right down. Yeah. He, What's interesting, I'm just thinking of that scene, the, the two juxtaposed Thanksgivings, Jane, that, mm -hmm. you, that you bring up. The, that. Other, the other thing is, though, that very staid, formal, and it looks kind of suffocating, to tell you the truth, the one that I can't remember one. The, which I one think, I, isn't it, uh, whose Thanksgiving is it? I think it's Oh, it's CZ's. It's CZ's Thanksgiving. It's CZ's yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah. It would be so much spicier with Truman. That's the, that's the irony, though, too. I'm sure he added like a, a very needed irreverence and spice and warmth in a way. And well, I, those I, worlds <laughs> thrive on gossip, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure they were just all thrilled to have something to gossip about, even though it was painful. But he, he understood that those women love to gossip. They, everybody, to a degree in that world, loves to gossip. No and question. apparently they all knew that he would gossip about them. Babe would leave the room and he would talk to so-and-so, Slim, about Babe and, and vice versa. They, they knew he wasn't 
Mr. Secret, but I think it's the exposure to the outside world that they couldn't tolerate. They, that's that's very know. Victorian. Mm -hmm. Just shut up and you know, don't do it. What, what was it? One of those Victorian ladies said, just don't do it in front of the horses or something. Right. You know, just, right. yeah. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> for everything. Thank you. But I, I think this is maybe a good place to wrap up. And and what a pleasure again. Oh, thank you. So and also, I, I must say that they want to do social crimes. And I thought, well, if there's ever a moment to do social crimes, this is it, because that's the fictionalized version of a murderess who takes advantage of that society. And you see her fall through that society. Because if you if you try and depict a rise in that society, forget it. Because what are you actually aspiring to? So I, with social crimes, depicted a fall until she was driven to the point of murder. And Jane, I've only listened to it twice, okay? Oh, oh you thank know. you. I, haven't, <laughs> I don't think I've listened to it twice. <laughs> but I, I thought this, if this era is, is in vogue, please. I have somebody who's working on it, and I have the name of a wonderful actress who wants to do it. So maybe this will kindle some interest in that period because it was fascinating. And also, I just want to make one more point. There were rules. And that is what is so intriguing about Downton Abbey, about this, the swans. There were rules. There are no rules anymore. Forget it. None. There are no rules. And in fact, it's hard to break no rules because you just have to get crazier. So and, and, and so people like to see things with rules because they, they just look at the success of Downton Abbey. It's not only brilliantly done and portrayed and all that and produced, but there were rules and people knew what the rules were. Now, you know, what are the rules? Nothing. It's the Tower of Babel. Everybody's speaking their own language and look what's happening. All right. There's a real thirst for it. I work with all people who are significantly younger than me and I, I'm telling them about it all day because they all of a sudden want to know about Babe, about C's, about Capote, and they don't know. And so I think they're, I think, and we're going to share your uh, link with your books and, uh, you. you know, share a link with Verdura. <laughs> and in your books are on Audible. If you're a member of Audible, like I am, many yeah. of them are available yeah. for free. So we're going to get that out there so our listeners can. Well, I really appreciate it. it. And yeah. I think your podcast is right in the zeitgeist right here. Absolutely. There it is. We love so having thank you. you. Really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Jane. Thank you, Jane. Bye, kids. Bye-bye. Bye. And as promised, we will be releasing our episode on the Woodward murder for our next episode. Thanks for listening. Murder, murder, murder.